Welcome to the Deep End Beyond Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and experts discuss world-changing ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kosloff. Let's dive in. With the Deep End, we're creating space where we skip the surface level and go in-depth into ideas that matter. I'll be your guide as we explore possible futures of commerce, higher education, art, governance, longevity, and more with some of the most exciting figures in their respective fields. Joining me today in the deep end is Bradley Tusk, an investor, political strategist, and businessman. We spoke to Bradley on the day of New York City's mayoral election. His firm, Tusk Strategies, is running Andrew Yang's campaign. This is the first mayoral election Bradley Tusk has been involved in since he was Michael Bloomberg's campaign manager during his successful 2009 re-election run. Though the election's an important one, this episode is a higher-level discussion on the future of cities and their role in technological innovation. Few understand the complex relationship between government, regulation, and technological innovation like Bradley Tusk. He previously served as Deputy Governor of Illinois and Communications Director for U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer. While he has a deep background in political strategy, he's perhaps best known for helping Uber launch and remain in New York, despite intense pressure from incumbents in the transportation industry. Through Tusk Ventures, he's a prolific investor in companies that move the world forward, often in the face of significant regulatory hurdles. Portfolio companies include Coinbase, Lemonade, and companies in the on-deck community such as Lita Health and Main Street. Today, we dive into how the hybridization of white-collar work will reshape New York and other major cities, just as the globalization of manufacturing reshaped the Rust Belt. We also discuss the evolving relationship between government and startups from the early days of Uber until the present and much more. The Deep End is produced by On Deck, where top talent goes to accelerate their ideas and careers. We hope that those who listen to the ideas on the show are inspired to build. To learn more about On Deck's programs, visit beyonddeck.com. For show notes and additional resources related to The Deep End, check out ideas.beyonddeck.com. All right, let's dive in. Bradley Tusk, welcome to The Deep End. Hey, thanks for having me, Marshall. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. I am excited because I was reviewing some of the really excellent Medium posts you had, and there was a really interesting exchange you had with one of your colleagues that really centers around an idea that we're going to explore today, which was the implications of work from home and how that could affect cities, the workplace, all those things. I should note this was from a little earlier in late 2020. Yeah. So my, my view on it is, is the same though. So uh, perfect. No, no, no problem on that end. <laughs> yeah. So I'll just let you I'll let you tip it off then. Basically, what you said is that people don't understand the implications of what's happening of work from home, and you compare it to late 20th century offshoring of manufacturing. It'd be great for you just to give everyone the context and just explain the argument. Yeah, sure. So, so this was in the context of what COVID means for New York City. And it, it actually, it, um, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but we're taping this on uh, June 22nd, which is the date of the mayoral primary in New York City. And this, uh, this piece that I wrote is really what led me to then recruit Andrew Yang into the mayor's race. Um, I'll know tonight whether or not that was a good idea. Uh, but but it, it, either way, it, it really was the genesis for the whole thing. And, and the thought is this. Um, if you look at the second half of the 20th century, uh, once manufacturers had that aha moment where, oh my God, I could make the same product in Mexico or Taiwan for 20 cents on the dollar. And it's maybe it's not just as good, it's good enough. Uh, once they realized that, cities like Detroit, Newark, Baltimore, Cleveland, they were goners. They were never going to recover. And, and, you know, they really never have. There's occasionally a civic PR type campaign to kind of pretend that they've come back. But in reality, if you spend any time in any of those cities, you, you know that they haven't. And the reason is they were completely dependent on manufacturing. So as a result, um, there was just no, uh, it was just nowhere to turn. And look, it took a period of decades for manufacturers to fully choose to embrace uh you know, making their goods off, uh, offshore, but but eventually they did. And the reason why New York City, which is where I live uh, and I'm from, 
survived that is even though we lost a lot of manufacturing jobs too, New York has been the white collar capital of both the US and to a certain extent, the entire world, which means every industry either had their headquarters here or if they didn't have their HQ, they had a big operation. You couldn't be a serious company without having a serious presence in New York City. And that meant millions of white collar office jobs um, that didn't exist uh, in other cities. And the great fear that I have from COVID, other than the actual people who who lost their lives and got sick or lost their jobs, um, is that that same aha moment just happened with white collar employers where they said, oh, I don't have to be in New York. In fact, I don't have to be anywhere. I could be totally virtual and remote. I could be living in Florida or Austin or anywhere I want. And I think once they realize it, it's not that we're then going to lose all of our white collar jobs overnight, but that same permission structure that was created that allowed manufacturers to leave Detroit or Newark, Cleveland or wherever starting in the 1950s and 60s, now is happening in a place like New York City. And all the jobs aren't going to empty out tomorrow, but they don't have to be here anymore. Right, and it could be um, as significant as uh, Goldman Sachs moving a lot of their operations down to, to Palm Beach, but it could also be simply. I, I think about my own business. Um, we we're all, we're on twentieth and Park for those of the listeners who who know Manhattan, and we have a, a floor in our building. And pre-COVID, I assumed I was going to have to rent the second floor, which was a good problem to have. Expensive, but we're growing. Okay, good. And then. Now, once we're all finally fully back in the office, it's going to be still very much going to be here when you need to be here, right? People are going to go from having their own desk to just having grab a desk when you're here um, and a lot more conference rooms. And, you know, if at any given moment before we had 40, 50 people in the office, now we're going to have more probably like 25, 30. Um, and it means two things. One, if it's, it's if we're at 60% capacity, it means the blue bottle downstairs, the deli across the street, the CVS down the block, all these different businesses um, are going to have that many fewer people from my office wandering in. Now, my office in of, of itself, no big deal. But if, if you use the multiplier effect, it becomes a big deal. And second, I'm definitely not renting another floor in my building because I don't need it, right? So why would I spend all the money uh, on another floor of Manhattan real estate when it turns out I've got enough space here? So you start multiplying that out and then think about the impact on restaurants, bars, stores, pharmacies, and then ultimately the construction industry, uh, security guards, janitorial um, and, and it could amount to hundreds and thousands, if not ultimately millions of jobs. Um, and, and due to New York, what manufacturing did to so many kind of Midwestern Rust Belt cities in the U.S. So I, I am really worried about New York. Um, it, it is why I decided to recruit Andrew Yang into the mayoral race, because I felt like we needed someone who was a visionary who could really see we needed someone who could really diversify the economy. Right. Right now, New York is so dependent on kind of those white collar hub jobs. But yet we've never had a homegrown Microsoft or Amazon or Google here, right? It's, it's, it's too expensive to, to build a giant tech startup from zero. In a place like New York City, you need a mayor who's going to figure out how to make that happen, right? And look, maybe you could take all this in real estate, I'm talking for a long time here, uh, and, and say to startups, I'll tell you what, free rent for the next five years, but you got to be here for the next 20 or, or whatever it is, but you need a mayor who can see beyond the here and now. Yeah, and you said something interesting, and I want to see whether or not it was a misstatement or you meant it as you said it, which is who's driving the work from home? Is it employers or is it employees? Because we're seeing a bit of this, because this is where things have changed from November 2020. You're now seeing employers trying to bring their employees back in. You're seeing some employees who want to go back and some who don't. Who's actually driving it now that we're actually seeing the test cases? Great question. So I think it's, it's, it's a little bit of both, right? So again, just, just to think about my own business, if all things being equal, I would prefer not to rent the second floor because that's another expenditure that I don't have to have. But I like people in the office, right? So all things being equal, if you said to me, everyone can be here and it feels crowded and full energetic or the workers can have more flexibility, it's better for them, but it feels a little emptier and deader to you, I'd probably pick the former, right? But my business is dependent on talent. Uh, We run a successful, I think, venture capital fund or political consulting business or all the other companies that I 
uh, that we run um, because we're able to retain and recruit really good talent. And if I'm more likely to keep someone or get someone who's really good because I'm flexible and so you can come in twice a week and work at home three times a week, that's to my advantage. So uh, I think the workers have a lot of leverage here, even putting aside some of the challenges in the labor market at the moment, bigger picture. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit of both, but I think it's more the workers. You pointed out, and this is really interesting, that you're approaching this, not pessimism, but concern from cities from a city operations, governance, and finance background, which feels with the fiscal state of the city, because as you're pointing out, when you have that coffee shop not get served, that's also tax revenue that goes down the drain. That being said, you also pointed out that New York City, it's too expensive to actually build a company. So how do you balance these two things, right? So how do you have a city that is cheap, aka the price of rent has fallen and can therefore serve as a really strong hub for places, but also has the money to provide the services that people want because it's a yeah. contradiction. It, it, so the question is, is really one I would say of prioritization, right? Which is what are you going to put the money into if you are the mayor? So I believe, and I spent four years working, for example, at the New York City Parks Department. So I have a pretty good sense of what delivering city services is like in addition to having been my Bloomberg's campaign manager and working for him at City Hall, um, that the ultimate job of the mayor is to create the value proposition for the citizens. Deliver a city that is clean, that is safe, that is well-run, that that gives you the chance to then come there and do something with it, right? And if we can offer people a good value proposition, some people will say, I will accept the higher taxes, the more regulation, the worse weather, everything else, because the template works for me, right? So when New York City is clean and safe and well run, people want to be here. Tourists want to come here. Immigrants want to move here. Companies want to start here. So I think the first thing is you have to invest uh, in those basic operations and services. And if you can't do that, nothing else is going to work. And it doesn't matter if it's Yang's UBI program, which I love, but still, it, it to me, I would say it's secondary to uh, basic operations um, or a, any other program designed to impact inequality, um, which you know may be very laudable, but to me is, is secondary to the basic value proposition of making a city a worthwhile place because it is expensive to live here. It's expensive to work here. And you know, I, I really love New York, so I'm not sure what could really drive me away. But I understand that if you get to a point where you don't feel safe or it just feels totally unpleasant, you're like, screw it, I'll move to Austin and it'll be a lot cheaper. The weather's nicer uh, and I don't have these problems. So that's to me you know, where you have to start. I wonder what you think about Mayor Francis Suarez within the context of yeah. the role of a mayor. So your case for Yang that you're giving here is very specific. It's, 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 it's leadership, but you're also bringing up policies like UBI. What interests me about Suarez is that that's Miami's a weak mayor city yeah. in right. the sense that he, when he says, how can I help? He can't actually really do anything. So when you're thinking of how politicians, companies, et cetera, are interacting, especially online, how do you think of the balance between a mayor serving as a flagship, as almost the front-facing CEO with a visionary, versus nitty-gritty policy details? Yeah, so it's a good question. So I, I like Francis a lot. Um, I think that his attitude towards tech and trying to, to really build that sector in Miami is, is really laudable. Um, and I think that even though he doesn't have a lot of operational responsibility, he can, as a cheerleader for the city, as someone who really can make companies feel welcome and recruit them, as someone who could say, you know what, let me push to make Miami the first city to really allow drone delivery or autonomous taxis or new ideas that will make tech companies want to be here because we're going to give them the opportunity to test out their products and services in a real city, in a major city, there's a lot of value to that. Now, look, again, if he had more operational responsibilities as part of his job, he told me he's a hell of a cheerleader, but he can't make the trains run on time. I'd say, well, it doesn't really matter how well he's cheerleading, you gotta make the trains run on time. But again, using Mike Bloomberg as, as a template here, uh, Mike was both. Mike fundamentally understood, and the mayor of New York City is an extremely strong mayoralty, um, that his job was operations and being Mike Bloomberg, he judged and graded himself on it with every metric and data you could possibly imagine all day, every day. And at the same time, saw himself as the chief cheerleader for the city. And, you know, if you had a new company and you were coming here and you wanted the mayor to come to your opening or whatever it was, he was there, right? His view was, I'm here to help you 
create jobs here and, and make things happen here. And I think one of the many ways that New York City has really fallen the last eight years is when fortunately we've had a mayor um, who not only doesn't see that as the role, but in some ways is, is dismissive of the private sector and its role. And as a result, I think, you know, we've lost jobs in part simply because people don't feel welcome. So um, you got to go to walk and chew gum. If you were lucky enough to be a mayor with the responsibility to do both, uh, Francis is not, but whoever the next mayor of New York City will. Yeah, it'd be great to then, other than just attending company openings, the famous tweet that Mayor Suarez sent was, how can I help? So let's let's take New York City, for example. What are the tangible regulatory and policy changes that founders specifically should be asking for? Because the thing I just think about is, I know a lot of founders, I don't think they have, it's great that he put the Bitcoin white paper on the city website, but that's not an actual problem that any founder actually has. Correct. So uh, it's a great question. And the answer in most non-tech startup cases is one that doesn't really matter as much to founders, which is tax breaks, right? Um, you know, when I was the deputy governor of Illinois, uh, if we wanted to recruit a company to the state, you know, we might offer them a lot of things. But the main thing was we basically promised them you could pay reduced taxes or no taxes or whatever it was. Um, you know, most startups aren't paying taxes for a while anyway, so that's less of an issue. So one, I think, is is rent and office space. And I think we're now at a moment where you're going to have millions of square feet of office space in Manhattan um, that isn't going to be used either because people left or because there wasn't the demand to take it. Um, and I think that even if you're ultimately reimbursing the landlords through tax incentives for startups, it's, hey, I need a 5,000 square foot office and I have no budget for it or I have $2,000 a month for it uh, and I want to be in a place where my employees can get to easily and safely. What can you do for me? And the city ought to be able to say, you know what? we can work with these landlords to create this amount of space for you. So that's number one. Number two, it is very hard to start a business in New York City. Uh, all of the regulation and paperwork and everything involved is not built with the, found, the, 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 the mindset of a founder. And that could be, by the way, whether you're creating a tech startup or you're trying to open up a coffee shop, right? It's really hard no matter what, because what tends to happen is Everyone in government solves for whatever problem they read about in the newspaper or hear about on TV. So if uh, a wild boar somehow ran into your, your bodega or deli, you then have to have special boar-resistant you know, glass on your windows uh, in case that could ever happen again. Uh, and so regulation just get added on and piled on because you're solving for individual problems and not thinking about the cumulative effect on a business itself. And so we ought to make it that you go on one website, you make one phone call, and everything you need is right there in front of you. And someone from the city is saying, it is my job to help you create jobs. Um, let me sit here with you, and I'm your concierge until that happens. And while that doesn't exist yet and certainly hasn't existed under Mayor de Blasio, I think whoever wins this election today um, is going to be, if you look at the top four candidates, three are, are much more business friendly. Um, and so I, I think asking them to say, hey, who's going to help guide me through this process it's really important. And the third is um, ID, new ideas, right? So New York City uh, is a hell of a market to test things out in. So if if you've got uh, a startup that does, you know, uh, prescription via text, right? And you said, hey, I'd like to set up some new telemedicine regulations that, that are easier for consumers to take advantage of this product or service. Uh, can you work with me on a pilot program, right? Uh, or procurement. Um, you know, I have a good or service that I think the city could be a good customer for. Uh, I'm a new startup. I want to commit and grow here. Um, how can I sell into New York City? So, so the city can be a customer. It could be a quasi landlord. Um, it could be someone that waves or, or at least makes it easier to open a business and, and, and kind of knocks down a lot of red tape and rules and regulations. So you should be asking for all of that. And fundamentally, you shouldn't even have to listen to this podcast to know to ask that. The city ought to be saying to you, hey, how can I help you? And that's where, if you get back to Suarez, what what Francis is doing to me is impressive, because even though it seems so basic and simple, he's at least asking. I think the when you're describing the difficulties of launching a, just not even launching, just starting a business, something very seemingly basic, I immediately 
put on my non-existent founder hat and want to say, hey, let me pitch you Stripe for local businesses. There's a, seems like there'd be a million examples yeah. of yeah. attacking the encompassy here. But if you look back at the 2010s, there was a narrative around this, but it's not as if I'd really say there are a lot of strong cases of startups really building a stripe for cities, those different problems. Like if, if you disagree and push back, if you disagree. But there is a world of, of urban tech and gov tech. So it, it does exist. But if you think about it, and the, the, the way that I kind of got started in, in tech is for better or worse, I'm known as the guy that ran the campaigns to legalize Uber and ride sharing. But it was a hostile relationship between Travis and me on one side and cities on the other where the taxi industry said, we don't want this new form of competition. And they said to the, the people they gave money to in city government or state government, whoever the relevant regulator was in each case, crack down on this, don't let them happen. And we had to kind of overcome them and turn our customers into political advocates and use them to kind of overwhelm the system and win anyway. But we won despite city government, not because of city government, right? So. Um, it's been pretty rare. And one of the reasons that New York was a little easier initially for Uber was because Mike Bloomberg is a tech entrepreneur. So when he was mayor, you had a city that said, hey, we want to try to figure out a way to accommodate new ideas. Let's work this out. Whereas with de Blasio, I eventually had to run a brutal campaign, just savaging him on television. I think I spent $5 million uh, Uber's money doing so um, in order to get him to just allow us to exist in the first place. And so the, the first thing is, tech has to be seen as a source of jobs and opportunity, not as a threat to incumbent interests and campaign donors. I think what's interesting here, and I'm curious how you think about this, we're talking about, going back to the start of the conversation, competition between cities. Um, listeners will know we had Balaji Srinivasan on as one of our first guests, and he's very much into the ideas of international competition. So yep. let's take your 20th century manufacturing example to its logical conclusion, zooming out over the next 10 years, do you think the conversation is going to be much bigger than Miami versus Austin versus SF versus New York? And it would be more about Singapore versus like Taipei versus New York? It's a good question, right? Because it, it assumes that people decide that the U.S. is no longer as attractive as it has been for the last 100, 100 plus years. Um, there's for all the problems this country has, and we have a lot, and we could spend the rest of the podcast diagnosing them, obviously. Um, there's still something about this country that attracts people from all over the world, uh, and people want to be here. So for as long as, for example, you're seeing uh, a lot of students from China and from other parts of the world applying to go to college in the U.S., then I, you know, I'm not sure that Taipei or Singapore have a distinct competitive advantage, even if they could offer free rent or lower tax rates or easier regulation or whatever it is. But you could see a world where this country gets more and more dysfunctional, more and more divided, more and more broken, um, and eventually comes to the point where just like the value proposition of living in New York may no longer exist because it feels unsafe and dirty and dangerous and, and, not, and poorly run, there's a national version of that too, right? And that could have that could happen either because of all the polarization. It could happen because taxation hits a point that people decide that they'd rather not be here. Um, so I don't worry about that, say, over the next five to 10 years. I don't think we'll fall that far that fast, though that may prove to be famous last words. Um, but if we don't figure out uh, how to move from a world where all we do is live at the extremes and fight to a world where we can say, here is a way to have consensus on healthcare, education, guns, climate, immigration, whatever it is, and take the views of the mainstream and make those our policies, then I think eventually we are at risk for that. Yeah, I want to take another step back and talk about your early days at Uber, but from the perspective of your thesis around the urban space when it came to regulation. So if I were to sum this up, I would say that if you're looking at the opportunity, Mark Andreessen obviously wrote about this in Software is Eating the World, you had all these incumbents from the hotel companies to the taxi industry that used regulation and lobbying, all these different things to really prop up business models that actually weren't that conducive to customers, folks like you had big opportunities uh, with Uber, Airbnb, all those other different products over the 2010s. 
sitting in the year 2021, assuming knock on wood that we have a continued successful reopening, how would you define the regulatory space in cities going into 2021? So I I would say it is a lot better than it was a decade ago, but still not as good as it needs to be. And, And the Parallel I like to draw is between, it's still in the micromobility space. Uh, we're investors in a scooter company called Bird. Um, and we worked on the rollout and legalization of Bird in, in what became dozens of markets across the US. And our strategy and our experience in 2018, 19, 20 for Bird was very different than our experience in with Uber in 2011, 12, 13, in that on one hand, couldn't just roll cities in the way that we did with ride sharing, right? With ride sharing, they just dismissed us as like some small company that that could never pose a political threat to them. And then we just overwhelmed them with it and beat them into submission. Um, um, So they don't see that anymore. So you can't just take them by surprise. Um, But on the other hand, they also sort of are more knowledgeable about what startups can and can't do, not just politically, but substantively. And while cities have kind of more regulations and requirements and are more proactive in imposing those, um, they're also better partners in many ways too. And so the the nature of the relationship, I think, changed a lot between say what an Uber in a city was like compared to what a bird in a city is like, where it was more cooperative, more collaborative. Uh, it's It's been better, quite frankly. So like, for example, in just sticking with New York City as, as, as the example here, electric scooters were actually illegal in the state of New York, um, not because of anything to do with Bird, but if you remember the whole Segway craze, like back in the early 2000s, they started like exploding physically. Craze is, craze is putting it a little uh, over-optimistically in terms of yeah, units exactly. sold. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, so they banned it. So we had to change the law in Albany to make scooters legal. Um, and then New York City said, you know what? Um, just unleashing tens of thousands of birds in the streets of Manhattan will be total chaos and havoc. It's not good for anybody. Let's figure out a program where we start introducing this into parts of the city, starting in the outer boroughs, working our way into the center. And we'll pick a couple of companies through an RFP process, starting this off in the Bronx. And Bird was one of the companies that won the RFP and was, was selected to do it. It was a much better process. So on one hand, I think regulators are more mindful of startups more appreciative both of the benefits they can bring and also the political pain that they can choose to cause um, if they want to. So that's all still to the good. On the flip side, there's still a tremendous amount of regulatory capture, which means uh, in regulators looking out for the interest of the people who they regulate as opposed to looking out for the interest of the consumers. You see this a lot, for example, in the insurance space. So we were investors in a company called Lemonade, which is an insurance tech startup. And when we were trying to first get Lemonade, their license to sell insurance in lots of states, a lot of regulators in different state departments of insurance didn't want Lemonade, not because they really had any great specific reason for why we shouldn't be allowed to be in the marketplace, but because we were competition to the people who they regulate and we were gonna be able to offer a product better, faster, cheaper uh, than the all states and state farms of the world and everyone else. And so at first there was a lot of like, oh, uh, I'm going to protect the people I know who I golf with and who, you know, uh, I have this professional relationship with. And again, we had to kind of overcome that to win. And eventually we did. So there's still regulatory capture. And there's still also, even though there's more appreciation for what tech startups can do, I still think that in most cities, and again, this is where Suarez in Miami gets deserves some credit, there's less thinking about, hey, we want to be the hub for autonomous uh, deliveries uh, here in this city so that we can reduce traffic, or we want to create a local form of cryptocurrency where we can really encourage people to shop uh, in our local stores and, and get various financial benefits for doing so. You still don't see enough of that yet. And I think depending on the quality of politicians we elect, that's really what's going to be at stake in the, in the next couple of years. And this, again, this is because today happens to be election day is on my mind. Um, Yang would be a completely digital first technology oriented candidate that has ideas like Borough Box, which is a form of cryptocurrency for New York City. And there are other candidates, kind of Eric Adams, who's our leading competitor, who is an old school machine politician. And he may win. I don't know. But if he wins, it's going to be much more of, 
How do we keep things going the way we've always done them? Uh, and Yang would be an example of someone is, how do we do them differently? So that's broadly speaking in urban governance, the, the question that voters are gonna face over the next decade or so. And the good news is if you talk to most voters, they want change, they want technology, they want new ideas, new products, new services. We like that as consumers. The bad news is, people don't show up and vote, right? So today, if turnout in this election ends up being 860,000, I'd be pretty happy with that. That represents exactly one-tenth of the population of New York City. So that meant 90% of the people who live here did not participate in the process at all. And typically speaking, when turnout in primaries, such as municipal primaries, state legislative primaries, is 10%, 12%, 15%, even if the population as a whole wants new ideas, new technologies, new ways of doing things, if they're not taking the time to vote or we're not making it easy enough for them to vote, um, then we're still in a situation where the incentives for politicians and the inputs that they're getting are misaligned with what the people as a whole want and need. So something I'm really curious about, specifically given the Uber and Bird examples, I'm sure you've seen the whole, the millennial lifestyle subsidy is coming yeah. to an end. So prices on everything from the Ubers, the Birds, all of my Twitter is filled with people who are flying again, and their rides to the airport are exponentially large. What do you think the cost increases that are coming to a lot of these Sub, a lot of these programs and companies that are subsidized by venture capital. What do you think that means for their ability to compete with incumbents? Because, for example, I used to live in D.C. When I first started using Uber, it wasn't just that the Uber was cheaper. It was that, hey, the taxi company didn't have the credit card reader was always broken. There are always problems, but that's no longer an issue. I rode a taxi a few weeks ago and it was actually pretty okay. It was comparable in price. So what do you think that dynamic means for this, these industries? Yeah. I mean, I think it really depends on the sector that you're in, right? So so food delivery would be a good example here. Ride sharing would be a good example. If you're in an industry where the only way to get both uh, workers and customers, and workers could be drivers, it could be delivery people, whatever it is, um, is through a lot of subsidization, um, at a certain point, the problem is you can't indefinitely subsidize a company because then it, it might have a tremendous amount of growth, but there's never any profits. And when you pull that away, either the product becomes too expensive for consumers or um, it, it, it just it can't, it can't survive on its own, right? One or the other. So for industries where it's like, look, we need to bridge a gap. We have to introduce this new concept this new product, this new service, we have to take on the incumbent, but then ultimately there's no need for a long-term subsidy because this should be a self-sustaining, profitable business. I think that can work really well, but if the only way for DoorDash to survive is to either make it cheap for the customers to be able to order in or incentivize the restaurants or incentivize the, the delivery people, um, and that takes more money than the company can actually take in in revenue, um, that doesn't work. So for example, and uh, Uber rejected this wholeheartedly, but I proposed publicly that Uber, instead of fighting off regulation to turn their drivers into full-time employees, that they actually embrace it, not out of any sort of public policy view one way or the other, but uh, to put Lyft out of business. So right now, you drive for Uber and you drive for Lyft because you're an independent contractor. You can drive for as many platforms as you want. It would be irrational not to, right? Because all you want is to maximize the number of fares. That's all you care about. So if it comes in on Uber, it comes in on Lyft, whatever, right? You just want to have it. But let's say now Uber said everyone who works for us is an employee. We're going to pay them as such. We're going to treat them as such. Then all of a sudden, they can't work for Lyft because my employees can't go work for my competitor as well. They're, they're employees of my company. That would raise Uber's operating costs, they claim, by 20%. So I think that's inflated, but let's just accept it at 20%. But drivers then have to pick Uber or Lyft. And because Uber has a much significant more market share uh, in most cities, you're going to pick Uber, not because they're necessarily any better, more likable, whatever, simply because, again, you're trying to maximize your economic benefit. And if you're a customer, you're looking for the shortest wait time to be able to get from point A to point B. And if you go on a platform and the network effect for Lyft is significantly smaller than it is for, you, for Uber because there's a lot fewer drivers, more and more customers say, all right, well, I'll just use Uber or whatever. Uh, it's faster. And then more drivers say, hey, there's less opportunity on the Lyft platform. I'm going to migrate to Uber. And eventually you create a self-fulfilling prophecy that I think ultimately puts Lyft out of business completely uh, and makes Uber the dominant company in the marketplace where they no longer need to subsidize 
drivers and riders because they're not facing competition from Lyft. So um, I think some of it is there are sectors that venture capitalists like me like to invest in that can grow really, really fast, but it's not clear that it's ever sustainable without subsidies. And I think those are things we have to think about before we keep investing in them. And there are other times where I think companies have to just think a little differently. And yeah, the, the obvious view may be, I don't want to raise my operating expenses by turning my independent contractor workers into employees, but it may be the only way to gain dominant market share um, in this particular industry and long-term it's worth it. So I think everybody's got to think about this a little differently. So for our last section, you wrote a great piece that we'll link in the show notes about your policy regulatory predictions for 2021. So I just wanted to go through a few of them that are relevant. Yeah, we'll see how, how badly I did now that we're halfway through the year. Yeah. Well, I left I left the political ones out, so you're pretty much batting at a good at a pretty well right now. So let's start with uh, and I knew nothing about this topic, so I'd love to hear your explanation of it. Basically, states across the country legalizing mobile sports betting, esports yeah. betting, casinos, and why that's actually driven by the revenue concerns we were talking about at the start of the podcast. Yeah, and this is something I spend a, a lot of time working on. Uh, we're investors in FanDuel. We ran most of the campaigns around the U.S. to legalize daily fantasy sports betting. Uh, and I've worked a lot in that sector. So I'm, I'm pretty good. I even did a SPAC in the gaming sector back in the, in, the, in the fall. So pretty engaged in this. So look, at once upon a time, no states had lotteries. Now I think it's 46. No states had casinos, now it's 40. No states had sports betting, now I think it's 29. No states had esports betting, that number is slowly creeping up. One, two, three, it's still very small. But fundamentally, government always needs more revenue. And when times are really good, state governments, city governments are less likely to pass a controversial form of new revenue because they're afraid of the political backlash. And what they're saying is, okay, I have to choose between cutting spending, raising taxes, or embracing legalized cannabis, legalized sports betting, whatever it is, which has the least political harm to me, the city council member, the state senator, whoever it is. So when times are good, they don't rush to embrace these new forms of revenue because they don't necessarily need the money. Tax revenue is coming in just fine. They're good. But and, and the stimulus package from the feds kind of delayed this for a bit, but ultimately, COVID led to a significant decrease, obviously, in government tax revenue, which meant cities and states all of a sudden were at the point where they said, we have to start making some really hard choices. Um, and at a time where, because of, I think, a generally a very rightful push around inequality, there's more demand for government spending than ever. Um, you have to choose, okay, if I'm going to meet this need for spending, I'm going to put more money into schools, healthcare for all, uh, SNAP, whatever program it is, how affordable housing, um, I've got to generate the revenue from somewhere. And all of a sudden, if it's like, look, I either have to cut money for schools and and, and healthcare and housing, or I've got to raise taxes, or I can let people bet on the Jets game. All of a sudden, betting on the Jets game doesn't seem so bad, right? Then once a few states do it, and they see that like the people who did it didn't all get thrown out of office, a few more do it, and a few more do it, and it's a follow-on effect. And eventually, you have every state has lotteries, casinos, we'll have sports betting, esports betting, everything else. So I, I think it's it's one of these trends where once it kicks off, it may take a period of years, but it gets going. Um, the Supreme Court said that states can make up their own mind on sports betting a couple of years ago. Uh, they overturned a federal law called PASPA. Um, and once that happened, it led to states legalizing sports betting. Um, we're at, I think, 29 last I checked. We will be at 45 before you know it. Um, and then esports betting, it becomes more of a thing. So I've got a, a my son's 12. And he, you know, I think he's a, I would say he's a hardcore gamer, but, you know, I just stopped by the apartment uh, and he was playing Spider-Man on the PS4. Um, so, you know, he's a gamer and he doesn't gamble yet because he's 12, thank God. But um, if you, in six years, could I see him choosing to bet with his friends on the outcome of a head-to-head -head game of, of Fortnite or that? Absolutely. Or he watches strangers play video games on Twitch. Now, to me, that sounds crazy. Why would you want to watch people you don't know play video games? But I made that point to him, and he said back to me, well, do you know the Mets? And I said, no, not personally. He said, don't you watch them every night? And I said, yeah, that's a good point. So um, for, for that generation, watching people who are really good gamers 
play, I think is a natural thing to do. And then at a certain point, if they're old enough, betting on it is the next natural thing to do. And if you think about it, let's say you want to put a bet on a football game. A lot has to happen logistically. You need two teams. You need a stadium. You need referees. Many things have to take place for you to put down the money, uh, whether it's on FanDuel or with a bookie or with your friend or whatever it is to say, you know, Broncos by six. Um, Two dudes are playing Madden on Twitch or whatever platform you want to use. You're betting 50 cents if the next play is a runner or a pass. It's literally infinite. And this is happening all over the world. So it's 24-7 across the entire globe. Um, So it's a massive industry that, to me, you'll look back at 2021 and say, those were the really nascent examples of states like Louisiana, Massachusetts is in the middle of it right now, Maryland, um, legalizing esports betting, uh, and what feels like a super niche thing right now, I think in 10 to 20 years, is a huge industry. Another one that stuck out on your list was flying cars, just because we haven't even gotten autonomous vehicles. So I feel like maybe you jumped the gun, but you're going to have articulation of why. Yeah, so a few things. So one is I'm a little biased in favor of this topic because I've been working on a comedic novel about the fight to legalize flying cars in the city councils of New York, Los Angeles, and Austin. So it's, it's on my mind because I am struggling through this novel, which is uh, a lot harder to write than my, uh, than my other book was. So, um, but look, uh, VTOL is, is uh, you know, vertical takeoff and landing. Um, and that is a sector. And there really are a number of startups that are in this space um, and they're flying cars in one form or another. They might be glorified helicopters in some cases. They might be modified planes in some places. Um, But nonetheless, there are a whole bunch of companies with real funding uh, that are doing this in in different, you know, labs and and, and test markets around the country. Um, And it's coming. So it may not be autonomous. So look, the the technology for an autonomous truck and, you know, we're investors in the autonomous trucking space. um, It's not that complicated when it's mid-mile, right? So you got a trucker going 1,500 miles on I-10, which I think is the longest corridor in, in the U.S. If you're just going straight in the same lane for 600 miles, um, you could see how you, a computer could do that, right? How software could drive the truck. Um, but you got to get off the highway and then start navigating your way through city streets. That's really hard. I don't think we have the technology to do that yet. Compare that to a flying car. If what you're saying is here are sort of modified, much cheaper helicopters that can transport 30 people from point A to point B um, at, a, at a price point that starts to make sense. Um, the technology is not that complicated because you have pilots, right? Now, if you had self-flying cars, that adds another layer of complexity that I don't think we're going to see anytime soon. But to me, there's no real reason why some version of flying cars can't coexist with the rollout of autonomous cars or autonomous taxis or delivery drones or uh, autonomous trucks or anything like that. So for the last one then, delivery drones specifically, and this is an interesting case because I feel like if there was something that would have been ready for action that could have been deployed during really towards the start of COVID, I'd be curious what your thoughts were. Well, basically, so A, the prediction, but what happened the past year? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. There are sometimes there's a technology people say, oh, that's a good idea. And it kind of moseys along. Someone like me invests in it. We work on the regulatory framework for it, but it's kind of slow going. And then some catalyzing event happens in the world, and all of a sudden the value proposition becomes incredibly clear. So the real use case for this in COVID was telemedicine, right? So we happen to be pretty heavy investors in a bunch of digital health companies. And well, to me, the, the value proposition of you can just get what you need online and you don't have to go drive to a doctor's office or take the subway and sit in a crowded waiting room and risk getting sick and everything else and all the capex that comes with having to have a hospital or surgery center or whatever it is. Um, it was still one of the things like, OK, this will become adopted over time. And then all of a sudden, when COVID hit, nobody wanted to go anywhere near a doctor's office because we were all terrified of contracting COVID and started saying, OK, I'll, I'll try this video service instead. And I think most people's experience was, oh, pretty good. Um, So like, for example, investors in in Alma, which is a a mental health uh, startup, Alma pre-COVID both existed virtually and physically. Um, Once COVID hit, it actually stopped the physical locations, became a completely digital company and has 
absolutely taken off. Harry Ritter, the CEO, has just done amazingly well with it um, because people got very comfortable with the notion of getting their mental health services online, right? So I, I go to therapy every week. I haven't physically seen my therapist since the very beginning of March, 2020. And as much as I like her and I plan to keep going to her to ha- get her help and care, um, I'm not going to sleep to the Upper West Side. Uh, you know, spend 45 minutes commuting there and back from my office. Uh, I can just do it over Zoom or FaceTime or the phone or whatever it is. So I think lots of forms of healthcare are not going to go back to the way they were because COVID was this catalyzing event that forced people to use it. And then they realized, oh, this is pretty good. I might as well keep using it. So to deliver it. Quick thing, because yeah. I love the contrast. That completely contrasts with something like EdTech, where everyone, this is a case where actually um, in the mental health space, like the, the experience was actually like good enough or even better in many cases versus yeah. a space like EdTech where everyone hated Zoom school and there's a lot of work to be done still. Yeah. And EdTech, so I mean, we don't invest in EdTech, um, I think in part because any business that relies on procurement from K through 12 school districts to me is just kind of an awful business to be in. Um, but I think as a result of it, there's less innovation in it because so many companies don't want to have a business model dependent on government procurement. And so many VCs um, don't want to invest in companies whose revenue lines dependent on it. So there's just a lot less innovation in the space. Uh, so that's partly why I think you saw that problem. And look, it's a real problem. I had two kids that had virtual school for most of the last year and four months or whatever it's been. And it was terrible. So like, you know, that would have been great if we had a better version of it. So delivery drones are, to me, Think back to your point, Marshall, of March 2020, April 2020. We didn't know how you got COVID. And we'd get a package delivered and it would sit outside for two days because somehow that would disinfect it, which didn't even make any sense in retrospect, right? Or we're washing, you know, I remember washing fruits and vegetables uh, with like, you know, bleach or whatever, just a little bit, you know, to, to try to make sure that there wasn't COVID on that. At that point, someone said to me, hey, you can have these things delivered. And the risk of transmission of COVID will decrease by 99% because it's being delivered by a drone and not by a human being. I would have paid any premium for that. Now, I'm lucky to be in a position where I, I'm somewhat price insensitive as a consumer, but I think consumers in general, anyone who could have, would have been willing to pay more um, to, to minimize that risk. While delivery drone technology wasn't really where, say, telehealth was, where telehealth was ready to handle um, all the new volume. Um, I I think it's clear that there will be demand for it. And look, this is a depressing way to probably wrap up the podcast, but I I fear that we're entering an era of pandemics and it's not just that this was one isolated case. And I don't know how the next pandemic is gonna be transmitted. So it very well may be that while this one was airborne, the next one is via surface. Um, And in that case, delivery drones may be the most valuable thing you can imagine, simply because that's the only way we can get the products and services we need if if we're quarantined again. So um, I think COVID is going to be seen as ultimately a catalyzing event for delivery drone technology. It's still going to take a little while. You're seeing pilots in different cities around the U.S. where they're bringing burritos or packages or there are companies like Zipline doing medical supplies, and and that's really great. Um, So but it's going to happen, one, because uh, there's a real demand for it on the consumer side. And two, um, I think we can now understand in a way that we couldn't, you know, just 15 months ago. Yeah. And just last question that brings to mind something hopefully a little more optimistic. You started off by discussing how Detroit, Baltimore, formerly still great, but definitely economically hobbled cities from the 19th to the 20th century. If we're looking at a more dispersed American workforce, it seems like this is the opportunity for these cities. What would you say advising founders looking at a city like maybe you, your company's in DC, but you know, you go in two days a week and you live in Baltimore. How do you think people should think about the geographic spread? Great question. And let me add another layer of complexity to it. Take the conversation we just had around autonomous. So imagine a world where you don't physically necessarily have to be anywhere at any given moment. And you could get from the suburbs to a city or from one city to another in 20 minutes for some really short amount of time because now all the cars are driving themselves, driving at a much higher speed at a uniform rate with far fewer accidents and everything else or flying cars are now available or whatever it is. 
Um, and, and products can be, you know, you can get whatever you want, wherever you are, because there are now delivery drones, right? So take everything we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes or so and put it together. And then it, it creates incredible flexibility for the American consumer. This is true in any country in the world, potentially. Um, so where will people choose to live? And there's two ways to look at it. And I don't know what the right answer is, but I'm thinking about this a lot. Well, so one would be people would say, you know what, um, if I um, can live in a 3,000 square foot home that I could purchase for $400,000, that's a lot better than living in a 400 square foot apartment that cost me $2.3 million. And therefore, now if I can get from point A to point B on the two days a week that I need to be in the office in a pretty fast manner because of flying cars or autonomous cars or whatever it is, people will choose to move further out from cities and suburbs and exurbs will develop further simply because the, the value proposition they can offer people in terms of, of land for money is better than you can have in the cities. That's one possibility. The other is just simply people like to be with other people. And there's just a, a psychological human nature kind of impact where you want to be where other people are, where there's energy, where there's excitement, where there's ideas. Um, and that's what draws people to cities. And that's just a human thing that's totally independent of, of however technology develops or however workplace norms shift or develop in one way or another. And therefore, people will want to be in cities. Um, and it may be that they could be in, they could live in Detroit and work in a company in Philadelphia or whatever it is. Look, I'm, I'm incubating a, a startup right now in the tele-religion space, and we don't have an office and all of our employees, and aren't that many yet. But none of them live in the same state. We don't have. We literally don't have two people who live in the same U.S. state as each other. Um, eventually, I think if we succeed, we'll need some sort of office somewhere. Um, but right now, we're, we're we're making the the beta in, in Poland. Uh, we've got people in New Jersey, and New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, and Texas, and you know it, it's working just fine. So um, on the other hand, maybe it is cities, and we get back to that earlier discussion we had about the value proposition. Are then able to say, okay. Who can offer people the best place to live where you're in a city, you're with other people, but it's clean, it's safe, it's well run, there are good schools for your kids. And reality, they can just all compete with each other because it doesn't really impact what job you can get because you can do your job from anywhere. Um, you see that a little bit now, and that's why cities like an Austin or a Nashville or Charlotte are doing reasonably well because they've got better weather, higher quality of life, lower cost than say in New York or San Francisco. Um, and therefore there's a competitive advantage. Um, it would be really interesting to see all of the US cities put on kind of equal footing and said, okay, the good news is you all have the opportunity to make your case and draw more residents. The bad news is a lot of you don't do this particularly well and you're gonna suffer from that. Um, let's see who wins. And that's when really the quality of the mayor will, will matter a lot. That's a great, great place to end. Bradley, thank you so much for coming. This has been a really great conversation. And uh, this is definitely not going to be the last word said on literally any of these topics. No, def definitely not. But uh, thank you, Marshall, for, for having me on. It was really fun. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.